Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. Willow Walsh. And Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage with those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today, we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled Naming Can Be Powerful and We're Not That Far Along. And we have a special guest with us today, mm-hmm. uh, my partner, Erica Hellman. Welcome. Hello. Do you want to tell folks a little bit about yourself? I'm 28 years old. I run a pretty popular coffee shop. <laughs> um, I've lived in the region for quite a while. Yeah, I guess that's it. Glad to be here. What is hometown, if not the region? Ohio. Okay. Mostly. Yeah. I moved around. Ohio, Utah. Oh, so there is something besides the Midwest in you then. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I was young. (laughs) Formative years. Formative years. (laughs) We're so glad to have you with us. Thanks for coming on. All right, so today on the show, we're actually playing these stories today in light of Women's History Month. So... Like normal, we'll go ahead and play the stories and then pause in between each to have a conversation about what the storytellers experience. And this first story today is titled, Naming Can Be Powerful. I did at least for a time want to be a chemist. It was not fashionable. And in my case, um, I was battling uh, both the issue of being the first in my family to go to college, um, as well as gender issues. It was a big enough leap to to think about college, um, and my religious background was very, very conservative. And so, um, you know, I always expected that what I would do would be to marry and raise kids, and I've done a lot of that. (laughs) In my late 30s, I had the opportunity to spend two weeks in Jerusalem. Uh, My first husband was at a, a chemistry meeting there, and uh, in preparation for that, I went through a series of steps and taught myself modern Hebrew. And we had a chemist friend that I had uh, been quite close to, and we went to the Shrine of the Book, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are, and he took me to the big Isaiah scroll, and he took me to a portion of it uh, where he knew the words were simple enough that I would be able to read them. And the, this act of reading words that someone had written 2,000 years ago was life-changing for me. And so it was not long after that that I began making the move toward going to seminary and then eventually getting my PhD in Hebrew Bible. (laughs) Absolutely, my being a woman um, has shaped my experience here. I, for instance, am an ordained pastor. I've had to face the reality that I labor with people who still think that that's an appropriate subject for debates. So uh, a couple of years ago at the Martin Luther King Day event, I was asked to participate, and I did participate, in debates about whether it was okay for women to be ordained. And if we think of it in terms of race, uh, we would not hold a debate over whether it was appropriate for blacks to be pastors or whether it was appropriate for blacks to be uh, senators or, or to be lawyers or to be doctors. Or to, but, but we're we're still at a point where we think it's okay to debate 
whether women should hold that role. I don't ever deal with problems, at least not anymore, by keeping quiet, but by a realistic understanding of what I can accomplish. So naming is often as much as I can accomplish. But, you know, I have seen among my colleagues men of goodwill who nevertheless, until I've named something, didn't notice it. And so naming can actually be a powerful first step in in moving things. You're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio at WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming live online at WVLP.org. And today we are honoring Women's History Month with two stories from our general campus collection that are reflecting on gender. And um, both of these interviews that you'll hear from today were actually uh, held quite a while ago. So this storyteller we just heard from um, was 2015. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. that's a little helpful to have some context. Um, The second one we'll hear from today is 2012, which is actually 10 years ago, which sort of blows my mind (laughs) away. So I always think it might be uh, relevant to think about, have we seen anything change since these stories or not, since the storytellers themselves are often reflecting on like, how much progress have we made here? So anyway, I thought that would be helpful background. Um, Yeah. Do you want to start us off with questions, Willow? Yeah. So so my first question for this story is, uh, what does she mean when she says that pursuing a degree in chemistry was not fashionable? I mean, she's a woman, you know, and she's an older woman, I'm assuming. Um, Maybe that's rude. I hope not. She's older than me, whatever. (laughs) And she's like, you know, had children, lived Mm -hmm. her life. But, you know, especially if you come from a more religious background, even now there's a lot of pushback against the type of careers within religious communities that women should pursue if they should pursue a career at all. And a hard science like chemistry, even if one goes on to be a more acceptable, like typically seen as feminine career, such as like a high school teacher, uh, is still maybe what a lot of people would discourage in you know certain religious communities. If you're going to have to career, if you're going to have to be outside of the home, wouldn't you want to do something that's going to like quote unquote prepare you for the home? Wouldn't you want to just like be a teacher, be mm-hmm. an assistant at like a daycare, um, administrative assistant, maybe be a waitress or like help cook someplace, that kind of thing? That's much more acceptable. Yeah, she also adds that she was the first in her family to go to college. So, yeah, I wonder if chemistry seems like a, and I don't know if this specialized is the right word, but like a very uh, esoteric <laughs> science or, you know, it's not something tangible. So, mm-hmm. like, how does that manifest itself in the world? That maybe is not easy to see for her family. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, a teaching degree or a nursing yeah. degree. Yeah, yeah. I know be. what teaching looks like. I know what nursing looks like. I don't know what chemistry looks like. Yeah. I also, I wonder, like, like my second question, too, is, like, how, how did her experience in Jerusalem sort of affect her? And did she pursue the fashionable thing when she decided to get ordained and um, get her PhD in the Hebrew Bible? I wonder if that's different from chemistry in the same way or... I don't know. For her? Yeah. For her family? Yeah, I think maybe both. Maybe both. Because when I think about her saying fashionable, I don't think of her deeming chemistry non-fashionable. I think maybe more like a family influence. Yeah, like the type of comments she would get. You get less prestige 
comments like, oh, that's amazing, um, when people don't see it really as fitting for you. And also, you don't really have any peers, especially, like, there's always going to be more men in the field or more men choosing that path, so you don't really have, like, peers around you that have that camaraderie and, you know, can excite you and push you forward. For both chemistry and the Hebrew yeah. Bible studies? Yeah. I would say both. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that, to this storyteller at least, that it's in her late 30s that she's in Jerusalem making this second discovery. So she's had a family and children. I don't know how old the kids are at this point. Um, so I'm making some assumptions, probably that they're in their teens or something like that. So she's, I'm hoping that her first husband would have been supportive of her interests in ways that maybe her family wasn't. I don't know. Like we don't get any more about their story or why he was the first. <laughs> um, so I, I, f- I feel like there's some more um, internal motivation going on here. Like I taught myself modern Hebrew yeah. and it just rolls off as if that would be so easy <laughs> to do. <laughs> Uh, I just find that astounding um, as somebody, especially who does not learn languages easily. So, um, yeah, I feel like that moment was a there's definitely some magic there that she talks about, which I don't think you could have manufactured, you know, like you can't go knowing I'm going to experience this text with the skill that I've given myself and it's going to change my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of you know, this isn't going to be just true for women, but people from groups who are marginalized, discriminated, oppressed, like these moments that, that any human could have of like an epiphany, right? Like Mm -hmm. you encounter a 2000 year old text and you read it because you've developed the skills to do that. And there's this kind of just like magic mystery like you feel like you're touching something much bigger than yourself and that's often where I think people in marginalized or discriminated oppressed communities get their motivation to like overcome hurdles she doesn't tell us Mm. anything about how hard it was to get that PhD in Hebrew Bible but um she did it (laughs) whereas I I don't actually she doesn't tell us but I don't think she got the chemistry degree I'm not sure yeah that's true we don't know I'm not sure when she says she got her PhD, does that mean she got her BA seminary PhD or yeah. So there's some steps in her process. We don't, we don't quite know, but I don't know. This feels so like indicative of like, or at least my experience as a woman that she's just like, especially the throwaway line of like, I taught myself modern Mm -hmm. Hebrew. Like I (laughs) technically have a German minor and I took German for over 10 years and I don't think I can speak more than like basic sentences. So that's just like, so it's it's such a, like an incredible feat, and it, like it it's sort of like I don't know the fact that she went to pursue a PhD in Hebrew Bible. Like for me, I think the hurdle would be like I don't know, like am I am I good enough to do this? Like is like that seems like such probably a male dominated field, PhD in Hebrew Bible. So I don't know. That's just it feels really I don't know impressive. Like mm-hmm. she just she like she was she used that sort of epiphany moment to sort of like pull her forward mm-hmm. into that career. So you're listening to WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, and we are community-supported radio, which means, well, 
I don't think you have to be community supported to do a spring pledge drive. <laughs> but maybe if you consider like public radio is community supported radio, but a station that's doing NPR, which is national, is a little bit different than what we do here at yeah. WVLP. And um, as we're launching the spring pledge drive, which starts on March 21st, um, we wanted to just tell you a little bit about why maybe you would be interested in pledging to the station to help keep it alive. And uh, Reagan, what do you think is the value of our little community-supported station, or more broadly? I mean, it supports local voices, and I feel like WVLP especially tries to support local voices that maybe we don't hear from all the time. Like, we're this is a room of queer women, and we are on the radio. <laughs> Amen to that. So if that is something that you can see supporting, then um, we would really love it to get um, some sustaining members for WVLP. And that means that you're making a monthly donation as opposed to a one-time donation. But we wouldn't turn that away either. (laughs) Um, If you do make a $5 a month donation, you can get... um, the couch music cd by our very own paul schreiner who you know you always hear a little bit of his music on our show and uh ten dollars a month you can get a wvlp t-shirt and at fifteen dollars a month you can get both the cd and the t-shirt and you can have your swag on so um fifteen dollars a month is just 50 cents a day if you could become a sustaining member, then please visit wvlp.org backslash support to make your sustaining pledge and become a member today. And we would be very grateful for that here at Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. So I'm one of your co-hosts, Allison Schutte, here with Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs, and we have a guest today, Erica Erica, I actually don't know your last name. Hellman. Like the mayonnaise. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Had to go there. Um, And today, in honor of Women's History Month, we pulled some stories from our campus collection that are reflecting on gender. So how do we want to go back into this first story? This is um, a woman who was a faculty member in the theology department at Valparaiso University. And the first part of her story we discussed is how she worked her way into a degree in Hebrew Bible. And um, now we're looking at the second part of her story where she talks about her experience of being in the theology department and on campus at Valparaiso University. I mean, I think for me, when I think of Women's History Month, it always kind of goes hand in hand with feminism. And so I wonder, she also talked a little bit at the beginning of her story about like how she was expected to marry and raise kids and how she actually went ahead and did that. And one of the questions I had while reading this is, let me get the right wording on it. It says, I, I asked, do you think a woman's act of raising children and taking care of the home is anti-feminist? Mm. I mean, in and of itself, no. Um, I think it could become anti-feminist if you do have an expectation that that is what should be expected of all women. But I think limiting women's scope of choices is anti-feminist. So limiting a woman to say like, oh, you're at home, you're doing the stereotypical role of a woman, that's anti-feminist. That's limiting her choices. So That's well said. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, it depends on how you define feminism too then. So it sounds like for you, Erica, it's about opportunities and choice. So and making sure that women have so feminism would mean making sure women have the opportunity and choice to 
live the lives that they want to live, whatever that yeah. might be. Yeah. What do you think, Reagan? Is that the same? Like, would you answer similarly or would you bring something else to? I mean, yeah, for the most part, like, yeah, feminism is about like choice. But I think for me, I fall more on, which I hope would be apparent. I, I know I'm real mouthy on here sometimes, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, more on the like, what does it mean? What does it actually mean to empower a person or group? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that someone staying at home is anti-feminist. I think people who say that are uh, rude at best. I will say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I do think that there, if we're going to label, I wouldn't label a stay-at-home mom as an in- inherently feminist act or mm-hmm. choice, I mm-hmm. guess. So mm-hmm. like, but I wouldn't say it's not feminist. I would just say it is a neutral, it is a choice. It mm-hmm. is a neutral choice in the sea of neutral choices. It is not inherently empowering that yeah the individual or women as a whole so yeah yeah, it's fine do your thing i mean i think what i hear you bringing to the table is that we don't make our choices in a vacuum Mm -hmm. so like how much does our society still overvalue i don't know is that the right way to say it like women as home caretakers yeah and if to the extent that society still places a great deal of preference on that, then women might not necessarily be having the full opportunity to make their own choices yet. So it gets a little bit muddy in there. Well, and there's always the question, again, as the obnoxious person, as the person who has had friends who have wanted to um, be in that traditional role, the thing that I've always put to them like okay so how are finances working like what does your economic freedom look like as an adult in an adult relationship in which you are not the breadwinner or bringing any type of income into the household because that um, is overlooked a lot of the time and that's growing up in a midwestern uh, small conservative mm-hmm. area mm-hmm. that is one of the biggest like focal points of abuse and in domestic abuse speaking wise that is one of the biggest focal points of control mm. so that's why also I would yeah, say yeah, it's like yeah. it is inherently neutral because there are great ways to do it I have a loved one who is basically a stay at home dad um, he works like one day at a week at his friend's business because he has a good time doing it. Um, and it's like a fun time for him and his friend. But he does not bring a lot of income into the household. He is a stay at home parent. I love his like girlfriend. They're not married, but they should be anyway. <laughs> is I that love- spoken as an anti feminist? It is a- not. It is spoken <laughs> as a friend who knows what my friend wants. And I am advocating. Um, but he you know he is very happy in his situation and his girlfriend really likes her career and makes really good money and doesn't mind you know providing for him but he has like like money for himself Mm -hmm. and he has money for bills like he has a separate bank account still like that is a way in which he is still viewed as an adult full human being which a lot of um Mm. especially back in the day like when women couldn't even have their own bank accounts that was a big part of why like that economic control is something that is always a priority when i hear about people getting into relationships and moving in together whether or not there's a stay-at-home partner that is Mm -hmm. because it's the biggest focal point for domestic abuse so i just that's a ping in my brain all the time i think the other thing that makes me think of is you know for a dad to be or a man to be a stay-at-home parent because it's unusual like we credit that towards the person's character, mm. which will happen in any 
gendered occupation, right? So we often think of men who are nurses as how interesting, exceptional, that, mm-hmm. that actually adds to your yep. character. Whereas when mm-hmm. we see women doing the things that are expected... You are doing the typical thing. Then like, then it's like there's a certain erasure that happens and mm-hmm. a, a devaluing that happens even though the work is the same. Um, so that's another interesting kind of just piece of that. I'm really curious. I don't know if you were going to get to this too, Willow, but like in the last part of the story... And actually, I don't know. Do we need to talk about the debate thing first yes i think so i guess we need to talk about (laughs) that first okay i mean what is uh, what were your reactions to the fact that this storyteller who is an ordained pastor was asked by colleagues on her campus i don't know that it had to come from the theology department to be on a panel for martin luther king jr day (laughs) um to debate whether it's appropriate for women to be pastors yeah, how did that land with you? <laughs> mm. um, I took that as like, wow, that's very strong and good of you, because I honestly don't think that I would be able to be in the same sort of situation. Like, I, I think, Allison, weren't you in a similar situation at one point? Like, you had to debate, like, whether or not gay marriage was okay, or... I mean, I was on campus when that, when one of those happened, one of those happened, but um, I wasn't, like, on that panel, but okay. I did go before Faculty Senate when they were debating whether to put forward a resolution against HGR3. Was that what it was? I might get the number wrong where it was like when Indiana was trying to pass the Religious Freedom Mm -hmm. Restoration Act, which um, the colleagues in the faculty Senate who were putting forward the resolution wanted to stand against it um, because of the impact it would have on the LGBTQ plus community. And there were other colleagues who uh, didn't, like, what actually supported the, the act itself and or thought that the faculty senate shouldn't be taking a political stand. So mm-hmm. I went to that meeting and spoke about how I felt like that act impacted me and what it felt like to be talked about as a queer person by my colleagues who were essentially... In my experience, what the way it's landing on me is that you don't validate this part of who I am. You mm-hmm. find it problematic. Mm-hmm. And that was um, very draining, difficult, uncomfortable. I left the meeting and broke down weeping because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so emotionally stressful. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think um, I don't know the thought process that the storyteller went through to decide to be on that panel or what impact it had on her it gives very much so gay marriage legalized federally 2015 solid choice thanks america um (laughs) (laughs) but i was in high school at that point and those were the debates all the time that was like well okay kids we're gonna have a debate day we're gonna prep for it and that was it all the time Mm. and as an adult that is so inappropriate like that is (laughs) so absolutely inappropriate like and it's the same thing they did the similar things i went to valpo um also and they had like the alliance which is the lgbt group on campus would occasionally like pair with at least one theology group or like with the chapel or something and they would have an event and the event every time was essentially can you be an lgbt person and religious or are should 
religious people be nice to LGBT people. Mm-hmm. And I I have I really struggle to see the value for the marginalized individual in those situations. I think those conversations are for people that have the power to make those decisions. Um, and that's messed up and that's obviously not okay. But I, I don't see the value in arguing humanity or ability and good for her for doing it. Just like Willow said, like mm-hmm. if she felt comfortable doing that, if she, that is something that she felt she needed to do or was called to do. Okay. But I, that's just, I can't, it's so inappropriate. I just, yeah. Erica, do you have thoughts on this one or? Um, like I, I definitely get, it's very ostracizing um, to someone, I don't know, to be a part of a group and to have people kind of, like you said, like debate the validity of it. Um, it's kind of dismissive, but at the same time, um, she talks about aha moments and how do you get to that without mm. embracing, you know, the other parts of humanity, even when there are parts you disagree with. So it's hard. It's, mm. you know, you have to make a choice of if you're going to make an impact in their lives or their viewpoints and whether that's your job, if that's something you do want to do, or if you just want to surround your people who or surround yourself with people who think differently. But I don't know, I'm kind of torn. Yeah, because you might make a difference, mm-hmm. but you also might leave feeling a little less whole. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, especially when you go through your life and you're already having situations where you do get chipped away at over and over again. I mean, it's a lot to take on, but I don't think that there's no value in it. Yeah, I think this is related to the question I had about how she wraps up this story or how the editors wrapped it up with naming can often be as much as I can accomplish, mm. which I, I, I thought we would have ideas about <laughs> or reactions to. I know uh, oftentimes in DEIA work, so diversity, equity, inclusion, access, conversations if you're in a lot of those there's a kind of frustration that talk so something equivalent to naming like that's all that happens mm-hmm. and then where's the that change in policies or practices uh, that feels frustrating and f- harder to win so i i i guess what i hear from what you're saying erica is that this storyteller was able to realize she calls it a realistic understanding of what i can accomplish Mm -hmm. so it would be naive to believe we live in a world that is devoid of um patriarchy (laughs) uh, white supremacy you know other hierarchies that do actually dehumanize people and if, if we ignore that fact that those ideologies are in operation, then we're doing it at our peril to some extent, too. So then naming in the face of that can actually be really powerful. At least that's what I think she's saying in, in this story. But I wonder if it feels like enough or <laughs> I mean, maybe it doesn't have to feel like enough for it to still be the right mm. thing at this mm-hmm. point in time for this storyteller. Well, I mean, there's always a beginning, right? There's always a start to these things. Like, there's always a start to understanding that 
not all people of color are insert terrible stereotype here and unfortunately like and the data shows this like when you look at like movements and things that help people change their minds um is like having a personal or a more like intimate like relationship with somebody that is other than yourself tends to be one of the biggest and best ways for you to help change your mind about whatever stereotype you've got in mind especially if you're not walking into a concept with the understanding that you may have these biases and you need to work on these biases the data supports that idea right um the problem is what Erica was talking about, where it's like it's the chipping away. It's the already mm-hmm. constant chipping away that comes from, you know, being a person. And then there's you would also you deserve to be a person. You as a minority, like you deserve to be a human being and a fully understood human being while also understanding that we live in the world that we do and that you will always have to explain or have to act as teacher for some people. And so Erica and you are both 100% right. I think our speaker is 100% right. But I do also understand the refusal to join in that conversation or to be the teaching moment mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. conversation. I think we need all kinds of people. And I, yeah, I think that um, maybe the push to be, for at least, again, growing up in LGBT groups, I'm white, uh, it's not the same. But that was a big push when I was in LGBT groups as, like, a teen and a young adult was like, oh, well, like, you can just, like, advocate and model for your friends, for your straight friends all the time. And it's like, well, maybe let's put that onus on straight people as opposed to things. And, like, as a person who would like to think that they are, you know, a white ally, I try to do the same thing. I'm not going to push the onus of, you know, explaining to my grandfather Mm -hmm why black people work just as hard as white people on a black person. I can go ahead and take that hit Hmm. and take care of that, hopefully, you know what I mean? And start having those conversations without putting somebody at personal or, like, you know, very real danger. This is WVLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. And in fact, we are launching a spring pledge drive on March 21st and asking people um, if you can make a one-time donation, that's great, but we're actually looking for sustaining members. So if you are able, could you donate $5 a month and in return receive a Paul Schreiner couch music CD um, or $10 a month for a WVLP t-shirt or $15 a month for both. All the swag you need. (laughs) So we would love it if you would help support the station and this show by going to wvlp.org backslash support. So I'm Allison Schutte, one of the co-hosts for Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, and I'm here with my fellow co-hosts, Willa Walsh and Reagan Skaggs, and our visitor, Erica Hellman. I'm not thinking about mayonnaise. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it did work, though. I was able to remember. See? See? Um, Today, in honor of Women's History Month, we have pulled some stories from our uh, Welcome Project archive on how um, people talk about and experience and reflect on gender. So I don't know if we were done with the first story yet. I just needed to do our, like, station call out. But um, anything else we want to do here before moving on to the second story? I think we can move on and we can pull 
pull some similarities between the two because okay. I think there's some crossover that happens. Um, so this next story is titled, We're Not That Far Along. We're not that far along, I don't think. I mean, there might be people on campus who say that we've overcome a lot of gender issues, and I think to some degree we have, but you look at the faculty, uh, especially in sciences, engineering, there's no gender balance. The ideal is a gender-blind society, but to some extent the culture is revisiting a lot of gender issues and in some quadrants slipping back into patriarchy. I think many women on this campus are not aware of sort of the movement in the 60s and 70s, how profoundly society was changed over that time. They have become maybe complacent because they weren't didn't live through it. And they may think that if we don't make gender a big issue, that's our way of sort of overcoming gender issues. I, I define feminism very broadly. At one level, it's simply a person who is sensitized to gender issues and uh, gender perspective. Now, the next step of a feminist would be a person who is not simply sensitive to those issues, but is an advocate in some ways. I find gender issues and the feminist approach still very useful in the classroom. They're seeing issues, I think, in the New Testament period that, that in some ways are still with us. That is, we've got a good instances in the early church of women in leadership roles. We see some instances where patriarchy from the larger culture is reasserting itself by the third and fourth generation of the early church. It's not an exact mirror, but I, I think the issues of gender and power are at play in the New Testament as they are in contemporary society. And I hope they can make some connection between the history that I'm talking about and the history that they're living. People from different backgrounds really do bring different viewpoints, and it's good to get these things out on the table, and that can often lead to very good conversations. Kind of, uh, it leads, I think, potentially to a lot of aha moments and, and kind of greater cultural sensitivity, which we could we could really use. Because uh, I think the culture is becoming more and more polarized. If anything, there's less cultural sensitivity in some quadrants, even as the culture becomes much more diverse. I'm acutely aware of cultural difference and how significant an impact that has on simply how you look at the world. I, I don't think you can just say, we've got to have a, a common point of departure before we start talking about diversity. Maybe we don't even need a common viewpoint. It's our own anxiety about cultural chaos or upheaval. Maybe it's a good thing not to have a, a single uh, reference point or a departure point. I was raised to be more comfortable with that. But I grew up late 1950s, 1960s America. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, with me, Allison Schutte, Willa Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs, and our guest today, Erica Hellman. And it's Women's History Month, so we have pulled some stories from the Welcome Project archive that help us reflect on gender. Where shall we dive in, Willow? Um, maybe we'll just start at the top, like how he's quantifying gender balance, and like what is he looking at to understand whether or not like the campus is balanced i mean i first instinct is oh well engineering department should be 50 50 but like i don't know you start looking at facts and figures and it gets a lot more stark so like generally speaking statistically speaking women go to college more women go to college and finish college myself excluded um (laughs) than men do um so like really if you're thinking about things it you should have a more generally speaking like skewed 
towards women in most departments. Mm. Uh, and that is definitely not the case. It wasn't mm. the case when I was going to college. I yeah. know it's not the case now. It is That is simply not how it is. Is that... So are we in agreement? Is that how you would define what gender balance looks like? Or like sort of a the ideal gender blind society is that women are represented like equal to men in all departments? I mean, probably. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's more of um, a look to see if there is a balance. Because I think if you did have more equal numbers, that would show that maybe they have the same hurdles. Um and are able to get through it the same because a lot of times I mean women have different hurdles when going into a field like kind of like we talked about before um, seeing people like them who are in that field having friends that are like them who are in that field um, and just the feedback from society I mean it's always different depending on your gender and what field you're going into what responses you'll get when you tell people like yeah I'm an engineer um, so yeah, I think, I mean, ideally you would have equal numbers because that does show that they had the same or similar hurdles, but I think it doesn't need to be exactly the same if hmm. the experience is the same. That's interesting. So like, so having like equal, like 50-50, like women in departments, that's like more of um, an indication of yeah. like how society is like, sort of putting people. If you were just to force people to go into, you know, everyone we're going to have equal numbers of people, that alone wouldn't fix, you know, any of the gendered issues or inequalities. You have to look at why do we have different numbers of women in different departments? Putting onus on the system as opposed to the individual trying to navigate the yeah, system. Yeah. I also. Another thing that stood out to me is he mentions, like, that women have become complacent because they didn't live through, like, the 60s and 70s. Do you think Do you think that's true? Well, just to clarify, he says women on this campus, and so I believe he means his students at that time. Yeah. So this would be students in 2012, so students 10 years ago, which I, we could talk about whether that would be the same or different now. Um, okay, so but then with that in mind, mm -hmm. the women on campus, like, have they become complacent because they didn't live through the the sort of women's rights movement? Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't call it complacent. I don't know. I feel like, if anything, it's um, less hopeful. Like, uh, the way that we express the problems we have with society now is different than what it was in the 60s and 70s. And so I feel like a lot of times, um, like people will shout into the void of the internet or they'll look for groups that agree with them on there, but they're not trying to change other people's minds because the way you do that on the internet is through, you know, retweets and angry spending all night trying to prove mm -hmm. an argument that only people who agree with you are actually going to read. Mm. Um, so I, I don't really see it as complacent. I think that people now, they don't really have the same... I don't know, like, avenue to make change. I don't know. We don't... Like, we do still have protests and groups and gatherings, but I'd, I feel like it would be less people than usual. Like, more so now we're just trying to stick to our groups on the Internet and do things on the Internet. Mm -hmm. But See, I took it as, like, I was wondering if it's 
maybe this is true. Again, I don't like when men call women complacent. That just, that word <laughs> felt icky. Like maybe I agree with it, but it still felt icky. Um, but like, I just wonder if like the, the conversations that we're having doesn't necessarily revolve around gender as it did in the 70s. Cause like, right, like the Gloria Stein of the, like that was a big push then. But I wonder if we've just, we haven't focused as much as on gender because I think like when you flip on like CNN or something, it's like a lot of the discourse that we're having about marginalized groups in society doesn't necessarily fall on gender. It falls more on race, I think. And so I wonder, like, I guess technically maybe we would be more complacent about gender issues, but not that we've just become complacent in general and that we're not thinking about things. I wonder if just the discourse has changed away from gender. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think this is a theme, Willow, that you and I have talked about the last couple of weeks when we've been revisiting the Invisible Project stories, which is stories of people who've experienced homelessness. And a number of our storytellers say, you know, I didn't know or I didn't understand until I experienced it too. And we've voiced a kind of concern or frustration, like, if people don't go through an experience or if people need to go through an experience to fully um, empathize and therefore be willing to act on behalf of people who have that experience, then it feels a little like, gosh, like when will change ever happen then? Because um, some things you can't experience, like Mm -hmm. maybe a lot of us could fall into homelessness, but uh, not everybody could fall into another racial category or fall into another gender category or something yeah. like that. So um, I I hear a little bit of echo of that here. Like these are um, young women who didn't have direct experience of that activism. And I feel like I've heard corollaries, not necessarily through the Welcome Project, um, of, of elders in the civil rights movements for uh, racial equity thinking that like younger people of color today they just don't have the same feeling of like what it was like to navigate survive Jim Crow and so um that impulse to like organize and have a kind of mass movement come out of that is like the conditions aren't quite there for it it's it's like the oppression or the discrimination has become more subsumed or less easy to see and therefore harder to rally around Mm -hmm. i don't know but i think like the fact that this came out of 2012 is super important because i think like i don't know i almost wonder like is it necessary like for women to have to have gone through the 70s like to have those conditions in order to want change, in order to move forward? Like, is it necessary for people to go through the civil rights movement in order? Because I think that we're still seeing forms of oppression that we're sort of branching off of. So I think of like, so this was, this story was before 2016, which is when like the Women's March happened and there was just, you know, thousands and thousands of women descending on Washington, you know? And I think, you know, this is before you know, George Floyd, this is before. So I think that there are things that we are rallying around. I just think it's it's more in tune with the conditions of today. But I, I do wonder about that aspect of like, are the things that we're experiencing today 
like police brutality against black people, like women, like the Me Too movement, women experiencing discrimination in the workplace, like is that enough to sort of rally large groups of people? Enough to have the agency to like change something? I, I also know. think, although I haven't studied this, so I, my knowledge is limited, that the idea of mass movements as the main vehicle for change is also being. Um, shifting yeah mm-hmm. like and then we don't necessarily need mass movements anymore it's going to be something more uh, emergent or organic um or affiliations um and that's also if if that's the case less dramatic and so sometimes harder to see unless you're really watching for it it doesn't mean that change isn't happening even along the way though so that it doesn't have to be a negative but it might be harder to look for the ways in which we need to the ways in which we can be hopeful because change is actually already happening. Yeah. I'm just going to jump in with our station call here that this is WVLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso and online at WVLP.org. And we are starting a spring pledge drive, spring pledge drive (laughs) on March 21st. We are hoping that you see the value of community-supported radio and would be willing to become a sustaining member. Willow, why do you value community-supported radio? So I think it's important to empower local voices and stories, specifically in Northwest Indiana communities. And with your support, we can continue to explore stories of our neighbors here in NWI. Awesome. And if you can get behind that, then um, please consider becoming a WVLP sustaining member. At $5 a month, you will get Paul Schreiner's Couch Music CD. And you know that we enjoy his music here because he's our theme song. Uh, $10 a month, you can get a WVLP t-shirt. And at $15 a month, you can get both the CD and the t-shirt. So please go to wvlp.org backslash support to make your sustaining pledge and become a member today. We certainly thank you. And I'm Allison Schutte, co-host with Willa Walsh and Reagan Skaggs for Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And today, in honor of Women's History Month, we have been listening to stories from our archives that highlight gender. We've been talking about um, how this storyteller was reflecting in 2012 when he was interviewed on whether women students on campus, I guess it doesn't have to be just students, it could also be faculty that maybe he was referring to, maybe because they didn't live through the movements in the 60s and 70s have become more complacent, quote unquote, around gender and gender issues. What do you make of of his definition of feminism? Mm, I was just going to ask that. (laughs) Perfect. Um, So I think it's really interesting that he has like a couple of different levels that are happening. Like he said on one level, it's somebody who's sensitized to gender issues and gender perspective. And I'd be interested to hear what we think that means. And also like that. So the next step from that would be a person who is not just aware of those things, but also advocating. And it actually reminded me of a story that we did. I think this was probably like last June where we were talking about what does it mean to be an LGBTQ ally and like what does allyship look like? So this this reminded me of that. We haven't heard from you in a while, Reagan. Mm. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I 
mean, is there enough here for you? Oh, there always is. Um, <laughs> no, I just. So I don't. I don't detract from his definition. I don't think it's a bad definition. Um, I would say you need to specifically say that it's about like women you know it needs to be specifically about like women's Mm -hmm. gendered experience not that feminism cannot and does not benefit other people because it does and it should um but when we're talking about like if you're talking if we're in a space and we are talking about how to uplift um and empower black voices and black people that is what we're talking about we're having that moment we're having that conversation so i think that needs to be specified but i mean for the most part yeah like you have to i i struggle a lot with again erica was talking about people on the internet and like Mm. maybe shouting into the void i feel like a lot of people shout into the void and say they are a feminist and speak about things in in a specific way in a very uninformed way um or in a very like closed in micro issues that no person in real life is actually focusing on um and i struggle to like necessarily feel comfortable calling that kind of thing feminist so it's understanding like yourself and understanding the broader context and also empowering others within the broader context i think that is a very necessary part that is missing a lot of the time in people's definitions in people's definitions and in people's actions Mm -hmm. okay I think part of it, too, is, like, there's so many different takes on what feminism is. Like, when I was sitting in, like, one of my topics class, senior year in college, in an English class, (laughs) the professor asked who would identify as a feminist, and only myself and one other person in this, like, 12-person classroom raised their hand. And I was shocked. I was was Mm. completely shocked. I... And so, but I think, so what happens is that so many of these takes of what feminism is can sort of color people's impression of it. And so it's hard to get people to sort of rally around it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think like when you say like feminism is bra burning, man hating lesbianism, like that's not inherently what it is. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is for me, baby, but like, you know, it's just like. Uh, there's different aspects of it so like when so people in that class he he had pushed back and he said you know well like why he didn't directly ask why don't you believe in feminism but you know Mm -hmm. to to that degree and someone was like well i think men and women are equal so then it's like what what definition of Mm -hmm. feminism are you pulling Mm. from you know so i think it's it's really hard because it can get sort of muddied up and so it's hard to sort of get behind that so i think this makes me think of the first storyteller who was talking about naming and how maybe this first level is sort of just being able to name where the disparities are between gender and then the second step maybe is like being able like trying to do something about it yeah i like um how they put like someone who's sensitized um to gender issues in the gendered perspective because i think a lot of time I don't know, like, it makes me think of, like, Roxanne Gay's book, Bad Feminist. But, um, like, there are ways in which, you know, even people who say that they're a feminist will do something that's not really feminist in nature. And I feel like there's a lot of in-group, especially right now, like, um, kind of arguments about, like, you're not a feminist and we've had bad role models. And um, But I, I don't know. I feel like the more people you can include in feminism like if someone is able to name things or to reflect if someone is open 
to just gender issues and gender perspective, like they said, then they are able to have those conversations um, and maybe to be understanding. And I think having a broad definition of feminism is definitely something we need because so many people like in your class don't want to be labeled as a feminist because of how specific examples are, especially from people who oppose feminism, um, but like how specific people can get with it. And so people are like, I'm not like that. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. the bra burner. I'm not the man hater. Um, But I I don't know. I think it does need to be broad so people can reflect. Um, Yeah. Feminism affects a lot. I mean, so I don't know that this is completely counter, Reagan, to what you were proposing earlier, but like I do hear in the term gendered experience that that could invite men to reflect on masculinity and how they've been conditioned male, too. And that awareness is actually super important for there to be an actual uh, like a movement towards gender equality. And and I think it's also useful. I. I guess I'm assuming here that it would be useful for men to realize that some of the ways that they've been conditioned male mm-hmm. have harmed them mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. and that, that feminism actually could be about them healing. And so it might be a personal health thing as well as a social equity um, that we could be striving for. So I do like that this definition allows for that. And I don't hear people talking about it very much that way, at least like in more popular media. I think there's mm-hmm. lots of masculinity studies that are hap- max- masculinity studies would be a, a field of uh, inquiry in, in higher education, for example. But that's not really filtering out into any, you know, like conversation we're having with coworkers at mm-hmm. the coffee shop about like, yeah. What is feminism? Or even in the English classroom. I'm actually surprised that you were shocked. Really? <laughs> I kind of am too. Yeah. You said we're in the humanities together? Like, no. I don't know. No. I don't see what I mean when I'm saying we need to prioritize like women we're talking about feminism is one we need to prioritize women but like yeah. it's anytime you're talking about an ism for an oppressed group the oppressed group at question is the one who needs to be prioritized i do not disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> just, just FYI. <laughs> but i would also say that just because men can benefit doesn't mean it's about them mm-hmm. um and if you are a man and a feminist you should already be questioning like mm. the aspects of masculinity that like work and don't work for you and frankly that is work that and there are masculine women and there are masculine women who display and participate in toxic masculinity. Mm. That is absolutely something very famously um, in a discussion I'm kind of having with some friends in the lesbian community. Mm. Like that is a thing that happens. Um, most masculine women are not, I would say, but that is a thing that is a part of existing. Some queer people to partake in toxic yeah. masculinity whether or not they're we get conditioned yes just the same as everybody else and there's toxic femininity there's there's all these aspects to these things but i think that when i am as a feminist woman talking about empowering and working with other feminist women or just women in general i'm talking about like okay so like earlier you are a stay-at-home partner like what is your economic like right and value within your relationship that is something that we need to prioritize talking about like 
what does the glass ceiling look like? What we're talking about, like men in quote unquote more feminine fields mm-hmm. and how that's viewed as an at like a positive for a lot of men and a negative for a lot of women. Another aspect of that is that men tend to be in charge of these feminine fields. So like your head nurse, your principal, almost always a man. Mm. So it's a quote unquote feminine field. It's like social work, most of your bosses in social work are going to be men, uh, despite it being a feminine field. So yeah. like they still be- they very much still benefit mm. within feminine spaces or like woman spaces whatever so like that conversation still needs to be about women they can and should just like trans people benefit from feminism and the understanding of gender and analyzing gender but it's not the priority but it is something and it's something that i think that i really wish that more gender aware and gender sensitive cis men particularly cis straight men would participate in like masculinity does need to change masculinity as it exists now especially within like a cis heteronormative patriarchal setting needs a shift and the people that can lead that are other men that's definitely a thing that needs to happen and definitely something i would advocate for and it's not something that i can you know super do it's something i can talk about to my male friends it's something i can talk about with my brothers and the other like men that i love in my life but I, as a woman, I cannot tell you what to do with your gender. That is your business. <laughs> well, you've spent another fine hour with us here at Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And before we head out today, we want you to check out WVLP's full schedule of shows at WVLP.org. We highly recommend Morning Black, Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, a platform for discussions surrounding the concerns of race and ethnicity. Morning Black specifically addresses concerns within and about the African American community, and the program is underwritten by donations from members of the Northwest Indiana African American Alliance and community partners. So that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanayogacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Visit their website to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support.